And I am Scott Jennings. Thanks for listening to Flyover Country. It's Thanksgiving week, and we are thankful for you for downloading the podcast and sharing it with your networks. This week, an interview with Kentucky's Secretary of State, Mike Adams. Mike is one of my oldest friends in politics. We've known each other for over 20 years. We were roommates at the University of Louisville. Mike's got an amazing career story. Started from humble beginnings in West Kentucky, a graduate of the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. He then went on to Harvard Law School, where he graduated with his law degree. He's been in private practice for over 20 years. And in 2019, he took the plunge and decided to run for office and had a really interesting campaign defeating a former Miss America to become Kentucky's Secretary of State. In this conversation today, we talk about his two cycles now administering Kentucky's elections. He had some interesting thoughts, I think, about uh, finding balance in a job like this, trying to fight misinformation from the right and from the left. Uh, he's got some ideas for how to reform Kentucky's elections even further. And of course, we also do the famous lightning round where Mike uh, reveals some uh, personal details uh, about himself. It's a conversation with Kentucky Secretary of State Mike Adams here on Flower Country. Thanks for listening. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Thanks for being with us here on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm honored to have in the Flyover Country studio today my old friend, maybe my oldest friend in politics, the Kentucky Secretary of State, Mike Adams. Mike, thanks for being here. Thanks. My pleasure. So you uh, just came off running your second election in Kentucky. You got elected in 2019. And when you took the job, I assume you had uh, little to no idea about how much elections were going to change and and you were going to have to fix it, basically. Right out of the gate, we have coronavirus, scrambles, a lot of things about government, but particularly on elections. We've now done it twice under the new sort of rules and regime here in Kentucky. Give us a status report. What's the health of Kentucky's elections uh, as we've known it for the last two cycles? Well, when I ran for this job, the first question I always got from a member of an audience or a constituent was, what does your office do? (laughs) Which is pretty telling. Uh, I'd never get that question. We've done quite a bit. Uh, I think all to the positive. And I think something that Kentucky has gotten uniquely right that really no one else in the country has gotten right is that we've made voting easier but also more secure at the same time. Uh, I think there's a false choice. Uh, you see on on my side, I'm a Republican. You see Republicans in some states who are making it harder to vote to make it more secure. And I respect security. I'm all for it. Uh, but I think it's a false choice they're making. Uh, even worse, you have at the national level Democrats who are trying to take away my ability to require a photo ID to vote, to clean up our voter rolls, uh, to ban ballot harvesting, just common sense stuff. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have been trying to ram through this federal law to take away my power over those things and, and our decision-making over those things, it's, uh, spending this narrative of suppression out there. So they're great on access in theory, but they're terrible on security. And so what Kentucky has gotten right, and really no one else has, is that we have improved access and security at the same time. Mike, when you took over, Kentucky had virtually no early voting or vote by mail. Our absentee system here was you had to have a real reason in order to cast a ballot before Election Day. Now we have a very robust early voting and and vote by mail system. Maybe talk us through the evolution there. Obviously, we had to do it because of COVID. 
Uh, a lot of Republicans are skeptical of it. Uh, they remain skeptical of it. But it seems to be working here, even as we wait for states out west to finish counting all their votes. Why is it working in Kentucky? Well, there are some things that we did for COVID that were one-time changes. Uh, we don't have no excuse absentee. I don't support no excuse absentee. I think all things being equal, the most secure way to vote is in person. Uh, that's not just my policy preference. That's a preference of Kentuckians. Uh, even coming out of COVID, we've had only 2 to 5% of voters voting by absentee ballot. Way more than that qualified to vote by absentee ballot. Uh, I saw a lot of people in wheelchairs in line on Election Day. They don't have to do that. They can just vote it in by mail, but they want to vote in person, and I respect that. I think part of why our changes have been received so well is that they focus on expanding in-person voting instead of mailing in ballots. Uh, absentee voting is a right in the, in the Constitution of our state. Uh, I didn't make it up. It's something that's been there for uh, about 75 years. Uh, my first election when I voted in 1994, I voted by absentee ballot. thought nothing of it. For most of our history, the method of voting was not politicized. There wasn't a Republican way to vote or a Democratic way to vote. Uh, that's changed, of course, in, in the last few years. Uh, the key thing that we've gotten right, I think, is that we have implemented in-person voting over a longer period of time. If you go back to Kentucky's first two constitutions, we actually had, as a matter of constitutional right, four-day voting periods. Uh, it was absurd to think we expect everyone to go vote on one day. And that's back in an agrarian era when people had more free time. We still gave them four days to go vote. Uh, starting about 1850, that was dialed back. Uh, and the legislature was given the authority in the Constitution if they chose in their discretion to expand voting. They just never really got back around to it for 170 years. Uh, to me, there's nothing magic about a Tuesday. There's nothing magic about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Look, if that works for you, that's great. But those aren't the only good choices. Uh, I know of at least one voter who usually doesn't vote, who now votes because she likes the early voting. That's my own mom. She works retail at JCPenney. She's a working person. Uh, she has trouble getting off from JCPenney on a Tuesday between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., but going in on Saturday is really easy for her. Uh, the big surprise to a lot of folks in 2020 and since then, not to me because I know politics uh, decently well, is that Although it was seen as a Democratic idea, uh, capital D, it was Republicans that used it primarily. In 2020, that was the first election in state history where more registered Republicans voted than Democrats. Mm -hmm. We've had lots of elections where Democrats voted for Republicans, but that was the first election where more R's voted than D's. And that wasn't my intent. I wasn't trying to rig the system and produce a result. But the fact is, I knew that Republicans would do well with early voting, and there wouldn't be a partisan advantage to that because Republicans increasingly are the working class party, the downscale party, and those are the people that benefit the most from the early voting. And we saw that again in the 2022 election. So I was going to, that was my next follow-up. So in 2022, who used the early voting in Kentucky the most? Was it Democrats or Republicans? It was Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a, a narrow advantage. Uh, their, uh, their turnout and Democrats' turnout, independents' turnout, roughly mirrored our current registration numbers of about 45% Republican 45% Democrat, 10% uh, other. But there was about a two or three point advantage for Republicans. Again, it's not because early voting is, quote, good for Republicans. It's, it's, it's the same thing for everybody. It's the same access. But the Republicans are increasingly the working class party. And they're the people that need extra days to find a time to go vote. And in terms of the vote by mail here in Kentucky, um, is it still 
It, I assume it's true that more people are showing up at an in-person location than turning in a ballot by mail, yes? Yeah, even even in this election, uh, with a lot of absentee used, it was about 4.8% uh, absentee ballot. And way more Kentuckians qualify to vote by absentee ballot than actually use it, based on age or, or health, disability, those things, being out of town, all that stuff. Uh, historically, we were about 2% absentee. Mm-hmm. Uh, every election from when I began paying attention in the early 90s, through my election in 2019, we were consistently 2% absentee. And the way the Secretary of State would project turnout is you'd multiply your absentee requests times 50, and there's your turnout, and it worked pretty well. It's harder to peg now because there's fluctuation in that. Uh, But in 2020, in our primary, we were 75% absentee. In our general, we were 29% absentee. Obviously, huge numbers pre-vaccine COVID. But we've now come back down to, to under 5%, and I think that'll stay. We did have a few lines in Kentucky on Election Day 2022. Oldham County was one. Uh, Bullitt County uh, was one. There may have been some others. Why is it that some counties seem to have a smooth Election Day, but a few counties had longer lines? And, and what are you looking at to maybe improve that in the future? Well, we had somewhat of a perfect storm here. We had the longest bout we've ever had in state history. Uh, this was the year that all the county races are on the ballot. We've got, of course, we had a U.S. Senate race. Uh, half the legislature, all the U.S. House, plus every county office in the state, almost every city office in the state, almost every school board in the state, uh, pl- uh, every judge almost in the state, and then two constitutional amendments, one of which was 744 words long. You uh, had a perfect storm of paper ballots that we implemented now being uh, universal, uh, and you had these long amendments that people unfortunately didn't read before they went uh, to vote. So even in even with those circumstances, in say maybe 100 of our 120 counties, the lines were very manageable, 10, 20 minutes. Uh, we had a, a few counties, especially around Louisville, that did have long lines of an hour to two hours. Uh, two things kind of converged. One, they were large counties. Oldham County is a huge county. Bullock County is a huge county. Large numbers of people. Uh, and number two, they're very red. And all things being equal, Republicans still tend to prefer voting on Tuesday versus voting early because they're more tradition-minded, I guess. Uh, also, in those counties, you had, uh, a, in my view, an over-consolidation of, of precinct locations to a few vote centers. Vote centers are great. They're super convenient, but they're not intended to basically replace all the precincts. They're intended to add convenience, not take away from it. Uh, with Oldham specifically, I asked the clerk to add more locations. I was I was spurned. I asked the Board of Elections to overturn the plan. Uh, they did not. Uh, so everyone was fully warned. I was hoping there'd be more early voting in Oldham to take the lines down. It didn't happen. Uh, so I think in terms of solving this in the future, the number one way to fix that is to have a, a different approach for when a county tries to reduce the number of locations. Uh, One would be to do what we did in 2020, which is to have some sort of a backstop. In 2020, the governor and I had joint approval authority over a county reduction plan, uh, location reduction plan. And that was kind of nice. So you had one D and one R, each with a veto, saying if they over-reduce, we can can veto it, make them add some locations. And and we did, and it worked pretty well. Uh, The other, which is a little harder but also possible, is to devise a formula that says if you've got X number of people in your county, X number of voters in your county, you've got to have X number of locations. We can't have a huge county like 
old number bullet with five or six locations anymore. And in order to do something like that, you'd have to get legislative approval, I assume? Uh, I would, and I've already begun that conversation. I, I began it actually before even election day started. Despite a couple of counties that had some lines, after two cycles of this new way of doing it in Kentucky, is it your opinion that Kentucky has the best voting system in the United States, or are there other states that you're still looking at as models of things you want to do here? Uh, I've been pretty shameless about stealing ideas from some other places. Right now, I think uh, we're in a pretty good spot. There's no major reform uh, that I think we need that we haven't yet implemented. We're tracking absentee ballots now, like other states have been doing for a long time. All things being equal, that's where you tend to see more fraud is the absentee for the simple reason that these are the votes that are happening outside the purview of the election officials. Uh, we now track those. We now require a photo ID to get one. We're one of only a few states that does both of those two things. Uh, I'll note, too, that uh, our, our version of voting, to the extent that you consider it ideological uh, in terms of requiring excuses for absentee ballots, having tight security measures. We have a system that's far more strict than Georgia's. Uh, and yet you didn't see the sort of backlash last year on us when we passed all these reforms that you saw in Georgia. My goodness, Georgia has weeks of early voting. They have no excuse to absentee. We don't do any of that. Right. And, and to my view, rightly so. But Georgia had the all-star game boycott. They had political backlash. We got none of that. And that's a testament to the fact that we've done this a lot better uh, politically speaking to make sure we don't have this kind of backlash. But we have a better system to show for it. You're listening to Mike Adams. He is Kentucky's Secretary of State, and this is the Flyover Country Podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Mike, as we sit here uh, on Thanksgiving week uh, following the, the November midterm, there are still a lot of ballots that haven't been counted, mostly out west. Um, a lot of Republicans are um, saying one of the following. A, this proves that those systems are corrupt and you can't trust it. Or B, they're saying something more muted, but still, um, you know, look, even if nothing is being done untoward, these long delays give the appearance of that. What's your opinion, just as someone who's now administered a couple of elections here, what's your opinion of the way it's going on out West? What would you tell Republicans about these systems? And what advice do you have for those states to maybe tighten this up a bit? I don't think it's a matter of, of corruption, per se, of this taking so long to count. I think it's bad policy, though. Uh, one of the nicest things about Kentucky, I think, is that we know on election night who won and lost. There might be some really close races that go to a recanvas or a recount, but in almost every race, we've got 98-plus percent of the vote counted. We know who won or who lost. Uh, it, it was remarkable to me, it always is, to go to bed on election night and know who won and lost every race in the state while we're still waiting on the West Coast to start counting Right. Their ballots. That's one special thing about Kentucky that I think our voters appreciate. They don't ever want to lose. And that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, the biggest reason is this. Uh, we vote in person. Uh, 95-plus percent of our votes are cast in person. Those are a lot quicker to count. Those ballots go into the scanner, and then at 6 o'clock we push the button to zero out the machine, and there's our count, and then we're done. And it takes a few hours to get all of those counts submitted to our office and reported to the public, but it's a pretty quick process. It doesn't take weeks. So one reason that we're so fast is we don't do what Arizona does and Nevada does and a lot of these West Coast progressive states. We vote in person, and it means you've got a much quicker count. Uh, I think it's better for the voters to have results election night. I think there's less uh, 
irresponsible speculation about stealing and so forth if it's transparent and it's reported on election night. So that's the biggest reason. The other reason, though, honestly, is because our polls close so quick. <laughs> they close at 6 o'clock, and other states are open much, much later. I would like to see us expand Election Day itself and have longer hours. I don't know how feasible it is. I've tried twice to get that enacted. I've, I've not succeeded. Uh, our, uh, ironically, it is easier. it was easier for me to get three more whole days of voting, including a Saturday, than it was to get one more hour on Election Day. Because the county clerks, and, and they're right, they say it's really, really hard to get people to work the polls at all. It's all that much harder to find poll workers when you're going to add another hour to an already 12-plus-hour day. So I'm not optimistic we're going to be able to expand Election Day hours uh, so it is what it is. But I think the biggest difference between us and other states, most states vote no excuse absentee, and we don't. You mentioned an idea uh, or two that you're looking at for the future. Um, what else is on your mind for 2023? Obviously, we have a governor's race, constitutional officer race coming up in 2023. So Kentucky will be one of three states uh, doing statewide races this year. Are you looking to the legislature uh, in January to make any major changes or overhauls before we vote again? Uh, the biggest things I want, uh, number one, as we discussed, I want to have some kind of a backstop to prevent an overreduction of locations. Uh, we historically have low turnout in primaries. I'm not worried about lines in the primary this time. Uh, you're going to have a shorter ballot. You're only going to have six offices on the ballot instead of uh, dozens like we did this year. Uh, I think we're going to have no lines to speak of in, in the primary. I'm not worried about that. I do worry a bit about November. I think we'll have turnout next year that will be comparable to what we had this year. And this is our one chance in this session to, to fix that problem. So uh, I am going to ask the legislature to provide some kind of uh, process to ensure that we don't have an overreduction of, of locations. And it's the local office holders who make those decisions, but there needs to be a sign-off from Frankfurt, and the State Board of Elections has not been aggressive enough. They've rubber-stamped every single plan they've gotten uh, for four years. That's the biggest change I want. Another change is to stop the uh, abuse of the process with these frivolous requests for recounts. I'm, gl I'm glad you brought this up, these recounts. Um, the story from Oldham County last year, or this past primary, the Speaker of the House, David Osborne, I live in his district, and he had a primary against a candidate who lost by like 50-something points. I mean, this thing was a total blowout. It wasn't even close. But the ongoing saga of that losing candidate's uh, uh, quest to have these things hand recount, t tell us about that. I mean, it's so ludicrous what happened. Let me first speak to the notion of hand-counting ballots. Uh, in 1940, Kentuckians went to the polls, and they voted to amend our Constitution to get away from hand-counting ballots because there was so much fraud and corruption, and an honest mistake, too, but it was such a terrible system. That's why Kentuckians got fed up and amended the Constitution to get away from hand-counting ballots. And so uh, there's a fringe in our state who are getting ideas from the fringe in other states to get away from ballot scanners and adopt hand-counting ballots. And why, a, why, why is that? What, what, is, what is exactly about the ballot scanners? I mean, is it there's fears they can be hacked or they're connected to the Internet? Is it, is it sort of that kind of thing? Uh, from what I can tell, there's not much of a rational argument that I can really understand and engage with. But what I understand is basically it seems to be a mass paranoia about technology uh, and the Internet. Uh, and the fear doesn't appear to be, as far as I can tell, that Russia or some non-state, uh, some rogue actor will come in uh, 
and, and hack anything, uh, the allegation appears to be that I will hack something. <laughs> uh, and the people that are out there selling this stuff basically are pointing fingers at me and the county clerks and saying, you're going to be able to rig the system against, quote, liberty people, right? Mm-hmm. Real, real Americans. And so you're the ones that can't be trusted. we got to take away your ability to do that. And if you actually press them on this point, they'll say, we don't want the government counting the ballots either. We want the campaigns to count the ballots. <laughs> <laughs> we had that in, in these uh, recount lawsuits. The people that were suing us for recounts were saying, no, 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 we don't want Adams and the county clerks counting these ballots. We want to count these ballots. Obviously, there's pretty good reasons that's not a good idea. My, my recollection is the last time we had mass hysteria or mass paranoia about ballot counting machines was after 2004 when Democrats were claiming that Karl Rove had personally— yeah. Uh, hacked voting machines in Ohio. This got so out of hand that it that was the that was the conspiracy theory that led to the Democrats on the floor of the Congress using uh, you know this controversy over uh, January sixth. They used it in two thousand and four to try to prevent the Electoral College from moving forward against uh, for George W. Bush. All on the allegation that voting machines were hacked in Ohio. It was crazy then, and it sounds crazy now. So just for the record. In the state of Kentucky, we don't have machines that are connected to the Internet. Yes. And the machines basically are you fill in the optical scanning ballot, you stick it in, it scans the ballot, and then on election night, the county clerk hits tabulate and it spits out a count. Correct? That's exactly right. And uh, we're of the same generation. We took multiple choice tests in high school on Scantron paper and it goes through and it counts it and that's it that's all this is it's not fancy stuff it's just a high school exam uh, checking machine if you will and something i've always wondered but have never asked so i'm going to ask you if you're filling out those circles and you get outside the line or you don't fill it in completely or you know you maybe you're not the best at, at filling those in how good is the optical scanner at recording your vote even if you've got a little uh, messy circle there here's how good they are not only do they catch that uh, they're programmed to prompt you and say, just want to confirm you intended this vote for this candidate or this measure. Uh, pretty good technology. They also spot uh, overvotes and undervotes. If you vote for more people than you're allowed to or if you skip a race, it's designed to tell you that. Hmm. Another question I have. In Kentucky, you can vote straight party ticket. You can also vote in each individual race. If I circle a state party, so let's just pretend I fill in my Republican circle. But then I look down the list and I say, oh, here was a non-Republican I wanted to vote for. And I go ahead and make a different choice in that race. What happens to my ballot in the rest of the races? I get this question pretty much every single day. Uh, These machines are programmed to count that as you voted Republican in every race except the one where you didn't vote Republican. So you don't negate your votes for other Republicans by voting for a non-Republican. Do you think it's good that a straight party option appears on ballots. Yeah, I, I do. And maybe I'm a little selfish in saying that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in my job. But I, I think it matters. Uh, I think it's a great convenience. It's a time saver. I think if we didn't have a straight ticket option on the ballot in this election we just had, the lines would have been even longer. But it's also, I think, important, you know, you're, increasingly you're seeing more and more focus at the top of the ticket, more and more focus at the national level, more focus on Congress than on local government or state government. That's not a good thing, I I think. Uh, You see newspapers in demise, local coverage in demise. 
there needs to be a mechanism to advise people on whom to vote for. That's why I'm not a huge fan of nonpartisan elections. Uh, I like partisan elections, so people walk in there, and even if they don't know anything about the their candidate for constable or magistrate, they can see the party label make a decision. Well, that's where I was headed next is it, it struck me looking at my ballot this year, you know, in Oldham County where I vote, uh, there were contested races at the top of the ticket. So um, Senate uh, Rand Paul's race. Um, but then when you got down into the county offices, I don't think there was a single Democrat on the ballot, which is pretty remarkable, actually, when you think about <laughs> in the state of Kentucky, how far we've come. But then you got into all these judicial races and other nonpartisan races. And I think you're, what you said is true. Uh, you don't know a lot about these people most often. How hard would it be for Kentucky to turn these nonpartisan offices into partisan offices to at least give the voters some idea of who's running uh, under what banner? I think you might need to amend the Constitution to change the judiciary elections because uh, I believe they used to be uh, partisan a long, long time ago, and the Constitution was amended to make those nonpartisan. So that, I believe, would take an amendment, which is probably pretty tough to pull off. Every other office, though, exists by statute. So uh, local government, Louisville, right, uh, foremost, I think there was a bill in the session last year mm-hmm. to change Louisville, uh, Jefferson County, to nonpartisan. That's just a matter of of passing a law. And, you know, personally, I like partisan elections because I may not know a whole lot about who these people are, but if I know their party, that it's a bit of information that helps me vote. I will tell you this. I don't favor having partisan labels on judicial candidates for, for this reason. I practiced law for 20 years before I did this, and I had a case in Texas, an election law case in Texas. And uh, I represented the Republican Governors Association in a, in a lawsuit there, and at the trial court level in Austin, Texas, uh, in Austin, it's a very liberal city and all the Democrats running for, or all the judicial candidates run as Democrats, right? Uh, so we lost in front of the trial judge who was a Democrat. And then we appealed and we drew a panel of uh, an appeals court panel of two Republicans and one Democrat. And we lost the one Democrat and we got the two Republicans. And then the other side appealed to the Supreme Court, which was seven to zero Republican. We got the votes of all seven Republicans. So at each of the three stages, we got the votes of the Republicans, not the Democrats. It's just, it's a bad look. I believe these judges were totally ethical and they made the decision as they saw it on the law, but it's a terrible look to have, I think, a very clear partisan uh, label on the judges. I think Kentuckians are sophisticated enough to be able to look at these candidates and make decisions uh, I think it helps when you had what we had in the elections here recently, which is outside support, defining these candidates a little bit better. If it's just a name, it doesn't really help you. I think it does help to have outside folks on both sides spending money to inform the electorate on what they're voting on and and who's the conservative, who's the liberal. I support that, but I don't support it being fully partisan. Let me ask you a simple question. What is the biggest challenge you face in your job? And is it what you expected it to be when you first got elected? Uh, The hardest part of my job is communicating everything that we're doing to the public and making sure that they receive the information and get it. I think we've done a pretty good job of it. Uh, So uh, a private criticism I had of my predecessor, uh, among other (laughs) public criticisms. That's for a different show. Uh, We could be for an hour there. Uh, (laughs) Is uh, I noticed that she only had, uh, I think, six or seven uh, political appointees in her office, and two were were comms people. And I thought, well, geez, how much communicating is there? Well, uh, guess what? I I was wrong. She was right to do that. 
I wish I had more comms people than I have. Uh, that is a massive undertaking. Mm. Uh, generally, knowing what to do is, is pretty obvious. The, the policy is pretty clear, and we, we make the policy decision. But we've got to sell it. We have to sell it to the legislature. We have to sell it to the county clerks. We have to sell it to, ultimately, the voters. And it's not just a matter of them not being against what we're doing. It's also a matter of them utilizing what we're doing. And so we, uh, we got a ton of coverage during COVID. Uh, everything was an emergency all the time. We got a lot less this year. We got a lot, but a lot less. And I think that's part of why we had the lines, is people didn't know about the early voting, didn't know it was permanent, didn't know what the locations were. So that's the biggest challenge. Uh, misinformation has been a huge challenge, too. Uh, and this is this is bigger than elections. It's bigger than me, certainly. Uh, one of the unfortunate uh, facts is that as the mainstream liberal has gotten so consistently left-leaning, there's been uh, a right-leaning media to take its place, which which I love. I grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, but there's also people that just won't trust any media. Uh, and they necessarily adopt crazy theories that they see on YouTube from provocateurs because those people are attacking the government. And they think, well, I don't like the government. So if these folks are attacking the government, they must be right. That's a logical error that they're making. But there's this whole uh, development of these fringe media. And on YouTube and Twitter, the way to get more followers is to be outrageous and say crazy stuff. And I deal with that every single day. Uh, You've got people that are very anti-government and guess what? I'm the government. <laughs> so uh, it doesn't do any good for me to say, well, look, I've shown you these facts or the media has shown you these facts because I say, well, I don't trust you. And I don't trust the media. Right. And so that's a that's a challenge, too. Um, a big topic of conversation these days in electoral circles is lowering the voting age. This seems to be a favorite um, topic on the left right now. Do you favor or oppose that? Uh, I, I don't favor it. I don't really see uh, much benefit to it. Uh, young people uh, don't vote generally as it is. Uh, it's a struggle to get them to register, and when they do register, they don't actually uh, show up. To give you just some stats, uh, since 2020, when I took office, a plurality of the people that have registered independent have been young people, hmm. uh, 18 to 29-year-olds, or 45% of of uh, newly registered independents the last last couple of years, even though they're not at that level in the population, uh, but they didn't come out and vote. We're still, we're still finalizing the vote numbers, so they're not official, uh, but independents really didn't vote in, in this election. Hmm. Uh, they're 10% of the electorate, but they're about 4% of the vote. Do you think when people in Kentucky register independent, you know, the word independent in political punditry, I think, is pretty broad, and what it means in one state might be something totally different than what it means in a different state. I've always surmised that in Kentucky, independent means, you know, you, you wound up registering even when you, you, know, you probably wouldn't have done it otherwise. Maybe you were getting your license or something that day. You don't feel strongly about politics at all, certainly about one of the parties. So you mark it down and you move on. And w- what you're saying seems to confirm that. So there are lower rates of participation among independent voters in the state. Yeah, there's been this ongoing 30 or 40 year debate about what independence are. What do they what do they mean? What does that mean? Is it just people that are not joiners? Is it people that don't want to affiliate with a party uh, the way they don't affiliate with a church or a civic group? That's just the way our society is going. Uh, are they just not joiners? Uh, are they people that are better educated than average? 
Are they smarter than average? Are they more demanding as voters than average? Uh, or are they people that just make a statement by saying, well, I'm independent, and they don't show up to vote? And I think there's a good argument for each of these uh, conceptions. In Kentucky, at least what we've seen is that independent voters are the fastest growing mm. constituency. Uh, I'm a Republican. I'm ecstatic to see the GOP growing the way that it has. Uh, we now have the lead in voter registration in Kentucky. But the truth is the independent, uh, the rate of growth of independent voters generally doubles triples or quadruples the rate of Republican growth. But if they don't vote, it doesn't matter, right? Right. You'll be on the ballot this year. Uh, you're filed uh, or will be filing to run for re-election. Mm-hmm. I think you've announced a In 2023. Yep, in 2023. Um, what is your future? I mean, I, I think you're going to have a primary. Uh, I suspect, you know, Andy Bashir, the Democrat governor, will probably try to get a full slate of candidates uh, what do you see unfolding for you politically over the next year? What's your what's your argument for, for re-election, and what can we expect to hear from you on the campaign trail? Well, my goal is uh, to protect our elections, and I think that uh, someone from the far right would not be uh, a capable and credible leader for our state, of our election community. Uh, I also think a far leftist would be just as destructive. Uh, it's It's tricky being fair. Uh, and being decent right now, because uh, I'll give you an example. This year, the far left spent $34 million in outside money against Republicans running for Secretary of State, $34 million. Uh, outside money on the Republican side supporting our candidates was 200000 That's a 170 to 1 disparity. There's a lot of energy and motivation and, and tons of money on the left. Uh, and I've got that potentially to deal with. Uh, they may spend money in my primary to help my opponent. They may spend money in the general course. Uh, there are rumors about who may be running. Some pretty big names uh, are circulating. We'll, we'll see. Uh, those of us who are kind of stuck in the middle, we're just going to do the best job that we can. Even in the onslaught, we reelected every Republican incumbent running for Secretary of State, and we only lost one seat, an open seat this year. So uh, if you look here in Jefferson County, Kentucky, we had a Republican county clerk running for, I think, her seventh term. Uh, I assume she got outspent. I can't believe that she wouldn't have. Uh, every other Republican in Jefferson County uh, lost, uh, state, mm-hmm. uh, county-wide uh, candidate lost, yep. and she, she hung on. Uh, so that suggests to me that uh, even Democrats, more liberal voters, they kind of like having a Republican in office uh, who's fair, uh, they maybe don't want to have one of their own people in office and own all this stuff and have someone who's radical and trying to change the rules. They kind of like to reward a Republican who's who's fair and decent and uh, treats everybody the same. So I'm optimistic I'll be, I'll be all right. All right. That's Mike Adams. He's Kentucky's Secretary of State. He was elected in 2019. He is on the ballot for re-election in 2023. Mike has become something of a household name in Kentucky because of all the uh, electoral changes that we've had here and it seems like, Mike, after uh, a couple of goes, uh, you've got this thing down uh, pretty good. Kentucky's election system, compared to a lot of other states, seems to be humming right along. You're listening to Flyover Country. I'm Scott Jennings. When we have guests in, Mike, we do the famous <laughs> lightning round. And so, uh, short answer uh, only to these questions. Number one, it is Thanksgiving, after all. What is your favorite Thanksgiving side dish? Oh, definitely sweet potato casserole. All right. Number two, uh, you are a well-known uh, aficionado of Richard Nixon. It's your favorite <laughs> president. Uh, what is your favorite piece of Nixon memorabilia that you've collected? 
Well, you gave me a pretty good spread of uh, buttons, and uh, I appreciate that. Thanks, thanks for that gift. Uh, I have got his business card from when he was an attorney in, in private practice. I've got that framed under special glass on my wall. It just says Richard M. Nixon, attorney at law. And it, I don't know what it's worth now. It was worth a lot when I bought it 25 years ago. That's pretty awesome. All right. I know you're a big Nixon fan. Let me just ask a sub a sub question. Who's your second favorite president? I don't James know. K. Polk. James K. Give us a reason. Well, uh, he, uh, he was an upset winner. He was a defeated governor of Tennessee who somehow managed to finagle the Democratic Party nomination for president. Uh, upset Henry Clay. Right. Uh, even though he lost his home state of Tennessee, upset Henry Clay, uh, promised he wouldn't serve a second term, had four very big audacious goals uh, for his term, uh, expanded our country. We got into Texas. We got Oregon and Washington. Uh, we beat Mexico in a war. We acquired Arizona and New Mexico. He did all of this stuff and then dropped the mic and said, enjoy, <laughs> and turned over the keys to the White House in four years. Pretty remarkable man. Very underrated. All right. Uh, you are a Harvard Law graduate from humble beginnings all the way to Harvard Law. When you go to Cambridge or when you were there, what's your favorite bar or restaurant? <laughs> John Harvard's. I don't know if it's still there anymore. I don't get much uh, up there much anymore. But John Harvard's little brew pub uh, right there off uh, Harvard Yard. Little known fact about Mike Adams. You are a quite an accomplished drummer and musician. What's your favorite rock song? When you When you sit down behind the drums. What's the first thing you think? I'm going to jam out for the next 10 minutes. So I think every drummer's favorite song is YYZ. It's a instrumental by Rush. It's 40 years old. It's got every kind of cool drum part you can come up with in it, all kinds of fun little fills. And every drummer spends his whole life trying to master it. I'm still working on it. All right. You obviously oversee Kentucky elections today. However, if you could have overseen as the chief elections official any election in American history, which one would it have been? <laughs> Not this one. <laughs> oh gosh, uh, you know it's a uh, it's a hard thing to answer because uh, the elections were pretty boring for a long time. People just took these things for granted, and we don't really know what kind of hijinks took place. I'd say if it hadn't been the ones I did supervise, I'd say 2016 because that was an election where uh, Russia actually did try to tamper. Uh, not necessarily with vote counts, but they did try and did succeed uh, to some extent in hacking into election offices in other states. So I, I do think it would have been great to have been here in 2016 uh, as well. All right. Are you reading a book right now, or do you have a book recommendation for the audience? So right now I'm about halfway through Matthew Continetti's The Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying terrific. to— Yeah, he's great. Uh, yeah, I, I read a book uh, called Grand Old Party last year about the different versions of the GOP that have— existed from Lincoln through today. And then now I'm reading this. I'm trying to get a better understanding of my historical moment. Uh, I just assumed when I was growing up that the party of Reagan would be the party of Reagan for my whole lifetime. And that was really unreasonable when you think about it. We've gone through lots of iterations of the McKinley party, the TR party, the Dewey party, Eisenhower, Nixon, then Reagan, Trump, obviously lots of different versions of what the GOP means. So I'm reading that. It's a really great book. I can't put it down. What's your favorite movie about politics? I don't know that I like any movie about politics. I think they're always wrong. I love the show Veep. Yeah. Uh, I watched it before I ran for office, and now I'm going to have to go watch it again. It'll, I think it will ring a lot more true now that I'm actually in the job. What's something you've learned working in the Kentucky State Capitol, some quirk of the Capitol, that you had no idea before you took the job? Uh, so uh, I had no idea when I ran that this was true, but in Kentucky, under our unique system, if a governor vetoes a bill and is overridden, the bill goes to the Secretary of State to sign. 
my predecessors didn't do a whole lot with that. Uh, you know, generally you had Democrats in my office and Democrats running the legislature and the governor, and so there was no, there were very few vetoes, and if there were, there was no reason for the Secretary of State to make a big deal about it. Uh, Allison Grimes signed some things. She signed the state budget in 2018, mm-hmm. uh, but didn't really see any advantage to going out there and, and dunking on Matt Bevin by signing a Republican bill. Uh, I've dunked a number of times uh, myself. Uh, I've actually set the record. I've signed 78 bills into law myself as the Secretary of State. Bills po- uh, passed by a Republican General Assembly and, and vetoed by the governor. Some pretty significant ones. Uh, major tax cut, uh, pro-life legislation, some pretty important significant bills, uh, school choice, and some other things. And so uh, I make a point not to step on anyone's toes, but I'm frequently asked by legislators to do a bill signing ceremony, and that's pretty special. Who's the Secretary of State from another state that you've grown to admire in your time in office? I'd say Frank LaRose is maybe my favorite. He's the Secretary of State of, of Ohio. Uh, just a really legit guy. Green Beret. I mean, this guy's just a stud. Uh, very respected across the country. Democrats trust him, like him. Republicans do as well. Uh, Black Friday's coming up. What deal are you shopping for this year? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't really need anything right now. We, uh, we're going to spend uh, that day just doing family stuff. You know, I'm going to take a quick detour from the lightning round. You obviously um, uh, spend a lot of time in the office and a lot of time on the road in this job. Maybe uh, reflect a little bit for us on the impact of public service on families. I mean, you have a wife, you have a daughter. Um, is, it, is it harder than you thought it would be when you took the job to sort of spend the time you want with your family, and, and how, how do they react to, I mean, you've, you've taken a lot of vitriol from a lot of people uh, since you took the job. Yeah, one of the hardest parts of my job has been watching my wife take our bumper stickers off her SUV because she got tired of being accosted in parking lots by angry people. Uh, it's just it's so inappropriate. Uh, it's not unique to me, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure the public officials get this too from the school board all the way up to the top offices. It's a very uh, uncivil era that we live in. In terms of family time, I've gotten off kind of easy because we had COVID for the first year or two of my term. That was a chance to kind of sit at home and watch TV and hang out with the family and play board games and just kind of refresh that relationship. But without question, the hardest part of the job for me is just missing out on family time. Uh, My daughter swam competitively, and I missed all her swim meets for basically a year and a half running Mm. for office. I'll never get that time back. And uh, it's tough. It's tough to miss those things. And it's again, it's not just me. I think we all deal with it. Last question. You're from Western Kentucky, uh, far west Kentucky near Paducah. Pork or mutton? Oh, I'm a pork fan personally. It's easy. <laughs> Easiest question you've had today. <laughs> all right. Mike Adams, the Secretary of State of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. You've been a great guest. Thanks for joining us Thanks on so the Flower Country Podcast. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.